Welcome to Being Human. This week's guest, Luke Homan. He's the founder and CEO of Contenio and the co-founder of Every Voice Engaged Foundation. Luke, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much and thank you for having me. It's, it's a pleasure. And in fact, I first came across your work through a guy called uh, JP Bailey, who's a coach and facilitator here in the UK. And I went to one of his workshops, tried on some of uh, the innovation games, which you first developed, uh, loved it, and kind of dug deeper. And since found out that you wrote the foreword to one of our guests, Mike Burrows, who was on the show, you wrote the foreword to his book, uh, Kanban uh, from the Inside. So yeah, um, so so glad to have you, have you on the show. Great people, great friends, great, great. Uh, th- those guys are great guys. They're, they're just mm. great people. So th- mm. it's nice to be in their company. <laughs> so I thought we'd start with uh, Contenio. Um, and right up there on the website, it says, priorities, not politics. So perhaps, perhaps a good start if you could expand on that. What, what, what do you, what's the meaning behind that? Well, um, a lot of organizations uh, get stuck in creating inadvertent structures that motivate what I would call political behavior as opposed to a statesman. So if you look at the definition and and how we think of the word politician, especially here in America, we tend to associate a negative view of the word politician. But if you think about the word statesman, um, or or I guess it may be more appropriately statesperson (laughs) in the modern world, um, you think of a person who is advocating for the greater good in not in a selfless manner, but in a manner that's cognizant of all of the complexities going uh, involved. And um, what, one of the things that happens in organizations is that uh, we create structures that kind of promote political behavior. And what we really want to know in many organizations is what are our priorities? How are we budgeting for our priorities? Are we aligned on our priorities? Are we working together as a team? And, and you see this manifested, you know, like one, it, it doesn't matter in some ways what agile method you're using. All of them have the notion of a prioritized sequence of work. Some of them call it the backlog. Some of them call it the Kanban system. But no matter what you call it, there is a prioritization to the work and helping people align on those priorities and figure out those priorities in a, in a way that is statesmanship as opposed to politics is what, is what we want to try and help people do. Okay. And so what is it that, okay. So what's the, what's the characteristics of a great statesman then in that, in that context or a statewoman? Well, there's a couple like, for example, one characteristic of a great statesman is there's a great quote by Jim Barksdale in, in the Silicon Valley. And, and his quote is, as long as we're using opinions, we might as well use mine. And he's the CEO. And he, and he wasn't saying, I'm going to be a command and control freak. He's like, look, what data do you have to help make this decision? And so I think that in one step organizations need to take is working towards a decision based on economic, and what I would call rational thinking. So I've got a list of ideas. They're just raw ideas. I apply some rational thinking to that, and I'm going to remove some of the ideas that may not have good ROI or may not 
be aligned with my company's vision or may not be aligned with our purpose or our strategy. So, so using some reasonable, rational approaches, I'm going to get rid of some items. The problem is that of, of that list of items, I still have too many to fund, too many things to go do. And again, using the kind of Silicon Valley where I live and our, our kind of approaches, we often say that people die of indigestion before they die of starvation, meaning we have too many ideas and we're pursuing too many things and we've got too many activities and eventually I run out of cash as opposed to focusing and getting something done. You know, I've got 10 plates spinning and I just put all my energy into spinning plates as opposed to stacking plates, right? You know. I, I grew up in cold weather. Another favorite Luke phrase would be, you know, is it a snowfall or is it a snow flurry? A snowfall accumulates. A snow flurry is just a bunch of snow blowing around and getting in your way. When you put all that together, you've got this list of ideas and it is too many ideas to fund. What happens is it, when an organization continues to motivate its choices based on rational thinking, things like ROI or net present value or some economic term, you do what I call create, you're, you're turning ROI into ROI because I cannot accurately represent the non-economic factors in that decision-making process. And what I really need to do is I need to sit down and I need to sit down and talk with my team and I need to say, look, this is why I think we should do this project, even though it doesn't have quite as strong an economic case as this other project, it has these other factors that aligns with our business, it's better for our brand, it opens up this partner, it, it gives us an opportunity to work with this channel. And without that conversation, if I only look at ROI or economics, I create an environment where people become more political precisely because they can't have these kinds of expressions. In, in a sense, you, you get to a point where we kind of need to argue a little, but argue in a constructive way, not in a destructive way. And that's one of the things that we're very focused on at Continuo. We're very focused on helping create frameworks so that people can move from a political discussion to a collaborative discussion that enables them to be successful in that uh, discussion or in that process, if you will. Right, okay. But how do you account, because, because a cynic in me says, okay, well, fine, but isn't there something in all of us that wants to gain personal power and that will we'll seek to gain any kind of framework? So is, how do we, you know, how do we deal with that? Yeah, how do we how do we go past our inner two year old? Um, <laughs> we all have an inner two year old, um, and the answer is, um, I'll give you, I'll give you an analogy. Right in the past, um, we were indiscriminate in the packaging for consumer goods because we thought that it didn't matter. And then we've realized that, you know, waste in the environment isn't a good thing. It's causing landfills to fill up. And so uh, some companies, and you know, I, I'm, it's not necessarily that I'm a fan of Walmart. I'm just using it for this example. Walmart said, you know what? Unnecessary packaging is actually bad business. It costs more to make. It costs more to transport the information. 
it costs more to store the information and it creates it just creates unnecessary waste. So we're going to work with our suppliers and we're going to remove unnecessary packaging. And everyone's like, oh, you're going to have to redesign and oh, you're going to have to, you're going to create all this expense. And Walmart's like, no, I don't think so. And eventually Walmart was able to very clearly prove that that unnecessary packaging or packaging design was actually part of good business. With small changes, you could be more efficient in your packaging. You could use less materials and you would create less waste. And the overall supply chain and the overall manufacturing chain improved. And so um, my uh, argument for the, the idea of collaboration is it appears to take longer, but it actually doesn't. And the resultant choice that is presented to the participants and their ability to act is materially or provably better. So, uh, for example, when in, in, in a less collaborative model, we have a small group of leaders that command and control model make the decision and then explain it and justify it and educate the organization. And that process can take months. And what we have found in some of our clients is by bringing in directors and senior directors, they were able to shorten that time of making the decision. And then because the people were involved and they understood the trade-offs and they participated in the trade-offs, they were able to start the execution process markedly faster. And that's an economic benefit, even though you, you may, quote unquote, give something up in the sense that you don't get your perfect inner two-year-old. Uh, uh, the reality is you come out ahead. Um, and the other element that I want to challenge you on is that uh, I wrote a blog post called Budgets Are Not Broccoli. And what I mean by that is if you like broccoli and I don't broccoli and I don't like broccoli, it actually doesn't matter because you're over, you know, you're thousands of miles away from me on the other side of the world. But if you and I are sitting down to dinner, well, then it matters because now we have a shared economic resource. And so even though we kind of have our inner two-year-old, as we grow older, we realize that the opinions of others and the opinions of people we work with do in fact matter to us. And so that's when budgeting, like your opinion on this project actually matters to me. You, because I, and, I, and I've seen this repeatedly in, in our work with, with organizations. When they start having these conversations, people say, oh, I didn't, I didn't consider that point of view. I, I didn't realize that. That's important to me. Um, even with feature prioritization with customers, we've done forums for clients where, you know, one client will say, oh, we really need this feature. And another client will say, no, no, you, you have a workaround for that. We need this other feature, which doesn't have a workaround. And then the first client says, I didn't know there was a workaround. And then you see this knowledge and this education, like, oh, since I now know that there's a workaround, I'm going to, you know, support you. So I, I think you're right in the sense that there is this inner two-year-old that we have. But more broadly, that inner two-year-old um, will over time realize that they get what they want through collaboration faster and better than not having collaboration. And that's, I think, an important uh, insight about how, how our work has evolved. Right. And because 
because some people I think hearing that might think, well, this collaboration and engaging in these creative sessions, yeah, I, surely that's going to take longer. And even though the the other mode, which is is to have some people at the top make the decision and then use some political skill to get get things executed, um, feels like it could be quicker than what might seem like a drawn out process. But you're telling me that actually taking that collaborative route is faster. In, 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 and of course, you know, there's no like perfectly, you know, um, um, there, there's no perfect universal response to this, this, this question of when is collaboration better or when is it faster? I mean, if the building's on fire, we're not here to sit down and collaborate. We're here to be, you will want command and control um, uh, to get people out. Um, in our philanthropic work, we found that when people through collaboration become self-aware that they're not skillful enough to solve a problem, they will voluntarily uh, seek to engage experts or subject matter experts who can guide them. And concretely, that's an abstract statement. Concretely, when we work with citizens in the city, many times the citizens will say, look, we, we don't know enough about roads and infrastructure to understand city and urban planning from infrastructure perspective. So we would like to bring in subject matter experts to educate us on what infrastructure we should in, put in place. But if you're asking us for what we need in our community, what would make our community safer, we can tell you we need streetlights here. We need a park here. We need a means for children to play here because this is what we're seeing in our neighborhood. So you start to see the, the notion of collaboration about projects or whatever, you know, business leader, you know, I'll give you one of my favorite rants in the agile community, because I know a lot of the listeners are, are agilists and technical people. Most of the time, you don't have technical debt in software systems. What you have is you have crappy collaboration between business leaders, and you don't have crappy code, you have crappy collaboration. And so what happens is, is, is business leaders, sometimes consciously and sometimes unconsciously, start to starve the technical infrastructure of the system. And they, they start to, to uh, not truly realize that they're actually hurting their teams by not giving their teams the right technical runway to make their system robust technically. And, and what, so then what happens is, and, and again, this is my experience, it may not match yours, but you see technical teams starting to say, well, we have a lot of technical debt. And you're like, well, do you really have technical debt? And the way Ward Cunningham said it, where Ward Cunningham said you were making a conscious choice on a suboptimal implementation, or do you really have just business leaders who aren't listening to you and you're frightening them with the phrase technical debt to get them to listen to you? And I find it's more of the latter than the former. And to, to address that, what we need to do is we need to have forums whereby the technical leaders can say, look, I need to make sure that technical interests about the infrastructure of the system are elevated and represented and we collaboratively understand what those things are. Now, I'll add that um, uh, the Scaled Agile Framework, SAFE, has a brilliant way of solving this problem and we call it a guardrail where we actually provide guidance on the amount of investment that should be made in different parts of the portfolio and in different activities, you know, 
So much of your budget should be invested in new features. So much of your budget should be invested in taking features you've built and iterating on them. And so much of your budget should be uh, invested in DevOps and infrastructure. And that's kind of like a minimum starting point of, of getting, because in, in, even with collaboration, you need guardrails to help people make good choices. Right. Okay. And, and so I, well, I see, so they, those situations sound quite analogous, right? You, it, it, in the case of, the, of working with development teams, you're talking about elevating that voice of the technical team and having them collaborate and, and talk with the, the business representatives, if you like. But, and also in the case of citizens in the city, you're, you're seeking to elevate that voice. Is that, is that right? And in fact, the name of the foundation is Every Voice Engaged. Is, That's exactly right. Yeah. So, so um, the, the purpose of the company is founded on, you know, if I look at my Simon Sinek framework, like, you know, Simon Sinek is, you know, he starts, you know, he has to start with why. And our why is, uh, we believe that collaborating teams are the world's best hope for solving the problems we face at all levels of society, within an organization, between organizations, and in society itself. The Contenio side of the house is the for-profit entity that works with, you know, major corporations and sells software licenses and, you know, turns a profit and creates a sustainable business. The, the non-for-profit side is Every Voice Engaged Foundation, which just so happens to use this lovely software to provide philanthropic uh, solutions and philanthropic mechanisms for helping people be successful. And so um, they work kind of hand in hand. Some companies use the Salesforce 1% pledge, which is, um, you know, pledging 1% of their time, their profit, and their, let's see, it's time. It's, I forgot the money, but it's, it, it's like, I, I'm going to pledge 1% of my, my company's time, 1% of our resources, and 1% of our other thing, which I can't believe I'm forgetting, to philanthropic causes. We, we chose a slightly different model. Um, but nonetheless, the, 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 the underlying meaning behind those things is the same. Okay. And then, okay, so let's to give people listening a flavor of how you approach that collaboration differently. What, what are the key aspects of your frameworks or your approaches that, that marks you out? Well, you took, um, you said you took JP's class, right? I took, well, I took uh, an evening, he did a meetup and he gave us a few tasters of his games, which I then went on to use, I must say, with clients. So, oh, that's yeah. good. That's good. Yeah. Um, so I, I would suspect that one of the things that he talked about was the idea that, um, and, and this is, again is another Luke phrase, a meeting starts with a time, a collaboration starts with a goal. So we tend to look at what people are doing and we're trying to say, well, what is your goal? Do you, and, and if you think about design thinking, you'll find that, you know, there's kind of five phrases, right? I want to align people at the start of the project on what we're trying to accomplish. I often need a phase of divergent thinking to explore the problem pace. I need a phase of sense making to take sense of the problems that I've, or the solutions or the insights that I've had and start to say, well, what is this? Is this a good idea? Is this a bad idea? Is this something I want to do? Or is this something we want to defer? And then I need an act of, of convergence or prioritization. And then once I have that, I want to be able to execute. And then, of course, using agile techniques, I want to engage in a retrospective process to say, how am I doing relative to the goal that I achieved? Sometimes the retrospective might be as simple as a financial thing. Like, did I make profit <laughs> on my idea? 
And sometimes the retrospective could be based on the, the team itself. How is my team doing it? You know, and through any of the agile, you know, hundreds of agile retrospective techniques. Um, so in terms of answering your question about how, how do we start, we, we, we always start, whether it's philanthropic or businesses, what is your question or what is your goal and what are the actions that you intend to take? Once we know what the goal is and the actions you intend to take, we can start to suggest frameworks because frameworks kind of align. There are frameworks that help you with divergent thinking and there are frameworks that help you with sense making and there are frameworks that help you with convergent thinking. So once I kind of understand and once you understand where you are in that flow in that space, you can pick frameworks that help you be successful in that space. And, and of course, by engaging your team, you create uh, what I argue is a more foundational aspect of, of true business agility. Because with business agility, I'm able to make a more confident decision faster. I'm increasing confidence. I'm increasing engagement. Um, if I, you mentioned before we started talking that you, you've been studying you know, cognitive science and organizational behavior. One of the things that we talk about in those fields our ambiguity, are we clear on the meaning, but also equivocality, are we confident in our shared understanding? And the use of collaborative frameworks helps reduce ambiguity at, while it also increases equivocality. Yes, I know you and I mean the same thing, and uh, that's ambiguity, and I'm confident that we're making a choice that we're comfortable with. I can go execute. I can go work with you as a, as a team member because I'm not questioning that choice. So, so the first step in using the frameworks effectively is understanding the goal and then kind of parceling it out into, uh, into um, um, the right set of, of, of uh, actions to take. I can, I can elaborate on that in a little bit, but let's see what the next question might be or where you might want to go with that. Yeah, well, where I, well, well, I suppose, so where I went with that is, so what it seems to me is you'll get, you're providing greater clarity amongst those engaged in the, in the process. And when I compare it to something which is more political, you know, the leader might come and they might give their presentation and they might take a few Q&As, let's say, in a, in a process, and they might come away with a, some kind of sense of whether or not it landed or whether they've got the buy-in. Um, but this gives a much richer data set, right? And, and having looked at some of the demos of your um, your engines, of, of actually where people are at. Absolutely. And, um, uh, you know, and, you know, we did a project for, uh, you may be familiar with the company PayU. They do payment processing in Europe. And we helped them with their 2018 priorities. And I want you to imagine in your mind's eye a room of 42 leaders, directors, senior directors, vice presidents, managing a, you know, very large, you know, tens of millions of dollars of budget. I think it was about $80 million. So it's a, it's a big amount of money. And how do you actually get people aligned? Well, in our model, what we did was we had each group do a forum. So each table did a forum using the Weave platform to get that table's perspective. Now, to set as a control group, if you will, we put all of the VPs in one table 
And then we distributed the leaders from the other divisions at the other tables. So we could kind of prevent the inadvertent, you know, what does my boss think kind of model. So now we have six independent forums prioritizing the uh, list of items. And keep in mind that every item that was going into that session was already evaluated for ROI. Every item already made the cut as being acceptable, but there were still too many. Two hours later, we hit a button and you could just see a, a readout. Here were the items that were fully funded by all six tables. Here were the items that were fully funded by five tables and partially funded by one table. And it doesn't matter which table partially funded it. When you look at that first set of items, we had the first 12 projects or so clearly chosen by the group. Because if five of six tables independently operating in the room think that it's a good idea, it's a good idea. That's where you start to remove those politics and you start to look around the room going, wow. And if, you know, when you look at the bottom of the list, if not a single table funded an item, not even the VPs, it's probably not the, even though it made the cut, it's probably in comparison not the best choice. And that's some of the, I think, more exciting things that we get to do um, when we're working in, in, in the platform and working with customers, right? Those kinds of things are pretty exciting to be able to, to tackle, if you will. Right. And what I saw as well from the platform was this idea you get this real-time feedback. So as people are evaluating options, and they're changing their opinions based on the discussion. These you you you're creating these visualizations of the options on a map, and they start to move around. That seems to me like a, a kind of a leap forward when you're trying to like read a room, which is like the the, the skill that you, you you often look for in leaders, right? But actually, you're not necessarily reading the room. You've got this visualization of where the rooms are. That's right, and and that visualization is is not designed to be, in a sense, a limiting visualization. It's instead designed to provide a mechanism by which we can make a better choice as a team, and and that's that's actually a, a slightly different way of thinking about this action of what what is the collaborative prioritization action? What how am I going to engage in that activity? Um, that's important. Um, um, and it's different. I, I mean, it, um, Chris Matz, um, who you, if you haven't had yet as, on your show, you really should. Um, he just wrote an interesting blog post about how um, the deeper principles of this forum and this activity start to play in, in the sense that um, it removes what he called the Cold War negotiating stance, right? Which is because the information is visible, I can't act in the old ways of like cold war where I'm holding information and I'm hiding information and I'm gaining uh, power through the manipulation of information in our platform. It's kind of the other way around. Um, we actually find, for example, that in the budgeting process, when people go through this process repeatedly, they realize they don't have to lie about the ROI because they have the opportunity to present the other factors. So, paradoxically, ROI becomes better and more believable without having to inflate the ROI to something that would be um, um, inaccurate. And, and that's a pretty compelling result for businesses because they can, they can really gain the, the benefits and the insights of, of other 
attributes of a problem that are important to the business itself. Right. And what I like about the, the platform as well is you're, you're really honest in the sense of you ask people like, do you support this option? And do you accept the drawbacks? Because in, in political world, how you know we hear all about the benefits, and, and often the politicians are kind of scared to talk about. But of course, there are going to there's a risk of unintended consequences, and of course, there will be these drawbacks in these areas. So, can you accept that? Is almost to, to taboo, right? You know, no, it's all about the sell, right? It's all about getting the buy-in based on the sell, and and you seem to undercut that with the with the process, which I like. You, you do, and and I think the thing that you want to be aware of is that. Um, in complex causal systems, you you can't predict the future, but you can predict to a degree where you're comfortable acting. Right? You know, you can say, um, um, you know, I don't. Um, <laughs> maybe I'll use parenting as an example. Right? I'm not. I can't predict what my son is going to do when he goes out at night but I can predict that I'm uncomfortable with him staying out till 11 PM. I'm not comfortable with him staying out till two in the morning. <laughs> that could be a completely arbitrary choice. I, I totally understand it. Like that may not have any rationality because he could do bad things between nine and 11, just like he could do bad things between 12 and, and 1 AM for whatever reason. It's what I'm comfortable as a parent. And, and I know how I'm, uh, you know, you know, understanding my own reaction in that world, if you will. Similarly, we can't predict how a, an initiative that we've funded in, in our business is really going to turn out, right? In the lean startup community, we would say, I have a hypothesis and I'm going to test the hypothesis, but even the hypothesis could be wrong. So what I want to be able to do is I want to make sure that when we're making that choice with shared resources as a team, we as a team agree that we're making a good choice. And we as a team accept the drawbacks that may occur. And if we're not willing to accept those drawbacks, let's keep talking and let's not do it. To your point. Mm. And have the open, the open conversation about that, which, yeah, which this, this platform seems to encourage, which... Um, well, the open conversation is better than the ones that we've had in the past, which were, you know, typically the closed door conversation or, you know, you know, well, I didn't agree to that. I mean, how many times have we had in business, you know, I start my, you know, I have a blog post I'm just about ready to post, uh, finish, you know, called how is your 20, 2019 planning C in January? And there's so many clients that we have at Contenio where they say, um, hey, we, we need your help doing fini finishing our 2019 planning. And I'm like, it is, a, it is 2019. Well, we spent November and December kind of arguing and we haven't really agreed on our plan. And so would you come in and help us, you know, finish our plan? And I'm like, yeah, but it wasn't the fact that you didn't start with enough time. It was that you used a poor plot process to, to, to figure out your plan itself. You didn't, you didn't, in a sense, argue the right way. Um, that, that's, that's, a, that's a statement we also use at Contenio. Like, we actually have had, you know, new employees who looked at some of the old, older employees and were like, wow, you guys really argue a lot. And I remember one time we took, a, we took a junior developer aside who was becoming, you could tell he was becoming concerned. He's like, you guys are really arguing. And we like said, okay, everyone, time out. You know, this new person's not aware of our culture. I said, listen to the words we're using. 
did I ever tell, you know, and Dan is our CTO, did I ever accuse Dan of being dumb? Did I accuse Dan of being stupid? No. I said, right. So when we argue, we're not arguing about the person and we're not doing that, uh, you know, like there was these famous arguments of, or famous stories of, you know, CEOs in Silicon Valley saying, oh, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard, right? We don't use that language at Continuo. But we do argue very vigorously using the techniques that you just talked about. Like, look, what's the drawback of this decision? And what's the benefits of this decision? And if this doesn't work out, upset that something didn't work out. And if we're going to be upset, should we maybe not use that choice or that decision? So, so those are things that we... I, I think we, we, we talk about quite a bit and we want frameworks to help us be successful in making those choices. Right. And I'm starting to get a picture of how you, how this could be faster now, because in my experience of, you know, working with local organizations, trying to get some proposal approved, you know, the, the process is you know, work out who the most powerful people are on the board or the steering group or whoever it is. Right one-to-one coffees with with each of them, selling the benefits in their language until you feel like you've got enough of a chance of in the meeting, each one of them saying yes, right? And then, you know, if you're lucky, you get to that steering group or that board meeting and you get a yes and there's no dissent. And, you know, maybe some of them like it, maybe some of them don't. And then, then it's kind of almost down to some level of luck then as to whether this thing actually flies or whether it gets sabotaged or, you know, whether it runs into the ground. Um, but that whole process, and especially if it gets kicked back the first time or the second time and you've got to re, re-propose it, you know, the next steering group a month or two months later, that whole thing can take forever. Whereas I, I, I can see here if you could get all of those effective into some process which, which – which had some efficiency to it, right? Because the the fear would be that if you get into some consensus driven approach, that you know this might take, it might drag out. But if you can get some efficiency to it, that you could actually very quickly move through the process and get a better result at the end of it. Right, and and so let's look at like two sides of the same coin, right? There's this um, when I think about um, the collaboration act, right? We actually think about multiple dimensions, like what's your goal. Then we think about who should be involved. Like, for example, if my goal is to understand what my customers want, I should go talk with my customers with buy a feature. If my goal is to understand what my funding priorities are, I should bring my internal people in and I should use the same framework, but I would call it fund a project, right? The collaborative participatory budgeting is the same technique. I just have one audience being customers and one audience and one content and one audience being features with customers and the other content would be projects in the audience or the participants would be my, my employees. So I think about what's my goal? What's my content? Who should be involved? And that who could include what you just said is what I would reframe that language is stakeholder mapping. Who are the stakeholders? And in the old world, the reason we did stakeholder mapping was for the political purpose that you just talked about. Who do I, who do I get involved and in? Who influences who? And how do they understand? And, and, and I'm doing it from this world of I'm, I'm trying to be the puppet master controlling who is going to say who. Like, oh, if I take, you know, Sarah out to lunch, Sarah will say something positive to Ming and Ming will talk to Satish and I'll get what I want through this kind of complex, 
you know, game of survivor, um, you know, ethics, if you will. In our world, we're going to say like, okay, who are the people who are aff- affected by the decision? Who can contribute to that process? And, and, and sometimes people have said, oh, Luke, are you saying that, you know, every single person should always be included in every single decision? Of course not, right? Of course not. You know, if, if I'm talking about the infrastructure of our software system, I, I, I'm not bringing in the Contenio administrative assistant who helps us run our business. She's wonderful, but she's not relevant and can't contribute to the subject matter. So, you know, there is some judgment about stakeholders that you just talked about, which I really do agree with, right? There's this notion of of a positive stakeholder mapping, but that stakeholder mapping is very different to me than, than the manipulation of the past that we used to do. Hmm. Which we really would manipulate that stuff in the old days of, of less, you know, who am I going to get involved in? How do I manipulate them? That was really a big deal. And an often well-intended manipulation, right? I mean, most people at some level, you know, most of the time had some greater good that they were, they were seeking. They were um, trying to be statesmen. I totally buy into that they were being statesmen. I really do. But, but, but the end of the day is they were still... They, they, you know, and that's, that, <laughs> it's funny, that brings me to another point. Um, a lot of the Agile community has very negative perceptions of management and leaders. There, there are, you know, some of my, I won't name friends, but I have some friends that I've had some very vigorous debates with where I'm like, when you read your writing, you are basically anti-management. I'll give you an example. Like people are like, oh, the scaled Agile framework is anti-management. I'm like, or it's command and control. I'm like, really, what part of SAFE is command and control? Have you read it? And when you really look at SAFE, it's, it's about distributing information, distributing decision-making into structures and giving program managers and solution managers and product managers both guidance, guardrails, and structure. So guardrails aren't command and control. Guardrails are needed. Like a city needs a permit process so it can interoperate. If you're building a large-scale IT system, it's kind of like building a large city, right? I need, I need to know how big the roads are. I need to know what the standards are. Otherwise, it can't work as a city. I don't want anarchy. I want, dis- I want decentralization. If you go down the street, if you go down my street, every house is built according to code, and every house is a little different. So mm-hmm. you can have both at scale. And so what, what I find in the Agile community, which really drives me nuts, as you can tell, this is a this is a big passion of mine. Is this notion like, oh, managers are command and control? Why? Because they're a manager. I mean, is it because they have a title, manager? I'm command and control. That, that's crap. What I find is that there are a vast number of managers who genuinely want to include their team in the process, but we give them tools like, to be blunt, we give them ALM tools. Well, an ALM tool is a tool for coordinating work. But what's not, ALM for people? Oh, uh, JIRA, version one, rally, you know. Um, and JIRA is probably the most well-known. Um, but, and I'm not arguing against an ALM tool, right? An ALM tool is a tool that we need to coordinate the work of the team. You know, who's doing what task and what's the status of that task? You and I are using a communication tool to have this conversation. 
but you and I aren't collaborating, right? We're, we're talking, we're, we're, we're mates talking, right? Good British term. <laughs> yes, uh, I, I hang out. <laughs> When, when you're a registered UK traveler and you, I can, I, I time myself. The last time I landed at London Heathrow, I was able to go through security in under four minutes. It was amazing. Um, which you might want to now report that to the government that, you know, you're letting this guy into our country. Do you know who he is? <laughs> anyway, um, the, the idea that because people are managers or because they're in a position of quote unquote leadership, they somehow don't want to be collaborative is actually false. Our data suggests the exact opposite. It suggests that these leaders are truly trying to find tools, techniques, procedures, processes that enable them to engage their teams. And what they lack are tools because what we give them is we give them something like JIRA and say, oh, use JIRA to be collaborative. Well, you can't use JIRA to be collaborative. Because it's not a tool to be collaborative. And, 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 you know, that's like saying, here's a crayon, go build a watercolor painting. I can't build a watercolor painting with a crayon. It's not the right tool. And, right. And, so, and for our, just for our non-technical audience, so JIRA is like, it's a, it's a, man, it's a system for managing tasks. It's, it's not, as you say, it's not necessarily designed for sort of high bandwidth collaboration. That's right. And, 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 you know, if you're doing any kind of project, you, you need any kind of sizable project. I mean, you need to know who's doing what and what's the status of that task and is the task completed. And so we definitely need tools that do that work. We, we definitely need things that can help us in, in accomplish those goals. But that's not the same as the goal of collaboration. That's, that's, that's not even close to what collaborative goals are or behaviors are. And when we confuse them, I think that's when we start to get into trouble. When we assume that a, a tool like a JIRA or something else is going to give us this collaborative ability, that's when we often get into trouble. That's, that's my experience. Mm. Okay, so you've described these these frameworks, but often often these frameworks say are games, and that's how I know you. It's you know you're the games <laughs> guy, right? You know you're the 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 prune the product tree or cover story or whatever it might be. You've got you've written the innovation games book, which has for people listening. It's you know it's a marvelous set of games you can play for orchestrating this type of collaboration. So could how could we best bring to life what a process like this feels like? And then for people who are like God, that you know, that sounds kind of weird or scary. You know how you know how can people kind of get over a, a sense of um, uh, concern about where how this would go down? You know, with their team. Well, I so here's the history of how things all started. I, I have a background. I'm kind of a curious guy. I have a a cognitive psychology, organizational behavior, computer science background. That's what I did in university. It's what I studied. It's what, you know, my work was on and some of my earlier writings were on. And when I started doing product development, I became frustrated, which in a sense, the traditional techniques that I was given. So I started doing activities and, and, I, and I'm just going to say activity. I didn't know what to call it. It was just activity. When I started consulting, my first client was uh, Qualcomm, the uh, chip manufacturer in, in America. And uh, they, they had a unique problem. 
they had achieved about 80% market share in the trucking industry because they just had a better product. It was one of these times where, um, you know, the kind of, they didn't, they, they had such a breakthrough innovation that they just kept selling it for years and growing their market. And they were basically making and selling the product. So the, the breakthrough innovation carried them for a very long time. And when they came to me, they, what they needed was a, a, a way to recharge or restart their innovation engine because their innovation engine had, in a sense, um, um, was like a rusty car or a rusty engine. It, didn't, it wasn't used because it didn't need to be used. The initial breakthrough was so incredible. So I said, well, you know, we have to start talking with customers and then, well, you know, how do we do that? We don't really have, you know, an experience of talking with customers. And I simply said, we, I have these activities that I do with customers. Why don't we do some of them with customers, product box, speedboat, you know, things like that. And this was way back in October of 2003. And after that first session, uh, Joan Waltman, the, the head of the division came to me and, and uh, Joan said, well, that was amazing. We, we got all these innovative ideas. And I said, yeah. And she said, it was so fun. It was like we were playing games. And I said, well, actually, there's a lot of game semantics involved in this work. So, yes, you, you, know, you can make the parallel. And out of the blue, Joan said, well, you should write the book called Innovation Games and, and, and share these techniques. And I thought, oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> so that's how the name came about. Now, um, it turns out that sadly, not as many people in business are quite as progressive as Joan was. And the word innovation games didn't always go over well with business leaders um, around the world. Um, many business leaders have less than favorable um, connotations of the word game. You know, we don't play games here in business and we don't. So I can make a perfect mapping between a game and a framework. But in reality, using the word framework opens up the techniques to a wider variety of, of applications. And so, yes, while people do know me for sure as innovation games, and I'm glad they do, it's, 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 I'm so glad that the book was written and, and it, I'm so glad it, it, it's had such a positive impact in the communities we serve in, in, in the world. Um, I do use the word game and framework synonymously. And we've kind of adopted the word framework because for most organizations, it seems to work better with the executive teams to, to call it a framework instead of a game. Okay. And, and again, so to, so to bring a framework to life, I'm just, yeah, if I'm, What's a, what's a good example you can use just to sort of step, walk somebody through what, what a session like this might look like? I think it might sure. be valuable. Um, yeah. So let's say, uh, let, let's start with, um, let's say, that, again, we start with a goal. So let's say that my um, goal, right? Well, in fact, I, I'll speak very candidly because um, I drank my own champagne. Um, so I am planning an innovation game session for my customers in January. Um, we have a, a process whereby about once a year, sometimes a little bit more frequently, we bring our customers and we partners together and we, we play games. Now, because it's our people, they know that we're playing games. And so I'm preparing a session where I want to confirm that 
our marketing messages and the roadmap that we're creating aligns with what our customers perceive as their ideal state for our product. So I've got Weave and I've got a bunch of companies using it, BMW and Cisco and Salesforce and PayU and Reed Elsevier and people like that. So I want to, my goal is to align to their needs. Their goal is to give me feedback on what they want. So they get what they want, right? They're, this is their inner two-year-old. Give me my features, Luke. <laughs> I'm Cisco. Give me my features. And I don't care if those features align to BMW or Salesforce because I'm Cisco, <laughs> which is fine, right? So my job is to get these inputs and, and craft a future. So we're going to play a game called Product Box. And we're going to bring our customers together and we're going to ask them to imagine that there were competing products on the supermarket shelf, just like our product in cereal boxed form. Like they, they, all, the, all of the competing products were in a box like cereal boxes. And what we asked them to do is we asked them to build their ideal box, the box that they would buy. And then they sell it back to us. So we invert the relationship. Instead of me selling a product to my customer, my customer is creating their idealized version and selling it back to me and to the other customers in the room. So I can gauge the other customers' reactions. What did they like? What did they thought was cool? By doing this, we, we gain deeper insights into what our customers want. We have a collaborative discussion because customers can choose to build their box with other customers. And you might not think that happens, but many times it does. We'll see like a representative from um, Cisco sit down with a representative from BMW and say, okay, look, you make cars, I make routers, but we both make stuff. (laughs) How about we work together? Because our business is more aligned or similar than say Salesforce, which doesn't make physical goods. They create hosted software. Okay, great. That game element becomes apparent when you see that a game has a goal, a game has a set of rules for interaction, a game has a set of resources for achieving the goal, a game has a field of play, right? So if I talk about um, your word would be football, our world would be soccer, right? Soccer has a goal, win the most points. Soccer has resources, the field of play and the, 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 the ball. Soccer has rules. Can't touch the ball with your hands unless you're the goalie. And, 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 and we have a referee, i.e. a facilitator, to help the outcome of the match be productive according to the rules. A collaborative framework or an innovation game has all of those same elements. Right? We have a goal. We have rules. We have resources. We have participants or players. And we have a field of play. In this case, it's a room that I'm providing. And uh, uh, what I'm going to get out of this session, which I'm very excited about, is I'm going to get the insight of what my customers are seeking in the future of our roadmap. And I will be able to compare that with our own development team's ideas about what we really want to build and why we want to build that. So for us, it's a very exciting opportunity to see, you know, are we aligning to our customers' desires? And if so, how well are we aligning? Are, are, are we doing a good job of, of meeting our customer needs. And that game, it's probably too long of an answer, I'm sorry, but that, <laughs> but that game is Product Box. And it's a really fun, simple, easy, you know, uh, game to use, if you will. Right, and that sounds so much different to, 
you know, sending out a survey and saying, tell us what you'd like in the next version of our software. I mean, Right. And going back to the thing that we talked about earlier, what I really want in the next version of the software is, is you know, yes, Cisco has what they want. I guarantee it. But I promise you, Cisco wants to learn how BMW and Salesforce and Reed Elsevier is using our software too, because that's going to inform their opinion about what they really want. Like, oh, do I really want that? Or, oh, there's a workaround for that. Or, oh, you're doing this interesting thing. I didn't know you could do that. Like every now and then, because we build a platform, it's kind of fun to hear people say, I didn't know your platform could do that. And I'm like, yeah, our platform can do that. I'm like, that's kind of cool. And I'm like, yes, it is kind of cool. <laughs> can I, can, you know, how would we take advantage of that? Right. So it's kind of fun to see when, when people discover the new part of the, of the platform that they hadn't been aware that it existed, which is kind of cool for us as developers of the platform. Okay. And again, I can see the difference between that and, well, we're, I mean, we're talking sort of business to business here, but a, another user conference where you'd, you'd, you'd go up there and you'd sell your roadmap and you'd pitch your ideas and you'd ask for some feedback at the end. It's, it's a very oh, different it's painful flavor. when you go to some of those, right? Because, because you know, you, 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 you get what I call a show up and throw up. The <laughs> customers show up, the marketing team um, uh, throws up the slides that they presented and then the customers vomit. And the reason they vomit is because they can't give any feedback on the roadmap through traditional roadmapping techniques. They, they can't interact. Um, and, and I'm not talking about like the, the, the PowerPoint presentation that after you've done this work and you wanna communicate that intention to your distributed team, that's a different, that, that's a communication, that's fine. I'm talking about when you actually want your customers to give you feedback, you have to use a tool that gives them the chance to give you feedback. <laughs> it sounds silly, but that's that's what that's what that's why we have. To your point, when you when you talked about prune the product tree, that's why we have prune the product tree because we can represent the product roadmap as a tree. We can ask our customers for their ideas on how that tree should evolve and grow and improve and change over time. That's a really different way of interacting with customers than traditional, you know, PowerPoints, you know, show ups and throw ups. Okay, so if, if people are listening to this and they're sold on that, okay, we should really be doing this differently. I want to have a go at this with with a team. Um, what what makes somebody successful in in introducing this and actually getting getting people to show up and, and engage? Well, the first is just the belief that they will. Um, I know it sounds funny, but a lot of times people will say, like, Luke, this sounds really interesting, but my customers won't do this. Or my team, it sounds good for Cisco, but it's not good for us. And I'll be like, why? Well, you know, because Cisco is a Silicon Valley company and they're really big and they're really successful. I'm like, okay, startups use our techniques. Oh, well, um, my customers won't do this. And, and you ask them why. And, and if you kind of just listen, most of the time, the reason is, is, is um, and it, this goes back to my first consulting experience at Qualcomm, uh, Joan came to me and Joan said, uh, I want you to start teaching our team how to do this so that we can do it on our own. I'm like, happy to do that. And she said, but I need to know, why are you good at this? Like, why do you get good results? 
And I said, Joan, it's because I'm unafraid of what your customers are going to say. It's not my product. It's not my baby. It's your team's product managers and developers. And so I have, I don't have the same emotional attachment. I want to be, I want you to be successful. And if the feedback that we're getting from customers is something's wrong, it, it doesn't, it doesn't affect me emotionally the same way it affects your team. I'm unafraid of what your customers are going to say. And she said, oh, that's really good. So, so one of the things that, that you really want to work on is you want to develop comfort that when people give you this hard feedback in these techniques, they're actually giving you feedback that you need to hear and, and are, it's in the best of intentions. Now, that said... And people, people will say, well, Luke, do you, you're doing this customer event. Are you going to facilitate your own sessions? And the answer is no, <laughs> I'm not. I'm too emotionally tied to what people are going to say. I'm going to be in the room and I'm going to be listening, but I can't facilitate that. I can't, I can't, I can't do that work because I am still too emotionally connected to my own products and services in a positive way. I'm going to listen to the things that I, you know, I, I know there are Software isn't perfect, right? We've got some things to fix. I got that. And so, so the, I think one of the, you know, the simple answer to your question is the first step is, is being as, as trite as it sounds, it's in a sense being unafraid of what your customers or your stakeholders are going to give you feedback on. How do I create an environment where I feel um, I, I don't want to use the word safe because it, I think it, it, it implies the wrong meaning of the word. They're going to feel safe to give you feedback. The question is, are you going to feel safe to hear it? And, and are, are you going to remember that even if that feedback is really hard, your customers are giving you that feedback because it's in their own best interest to give you that feedback. And they want to see you improve because they want to improve. So I think that that's part of the process of getting started is, is, and when I say customer, I also mean stakeholder. It doesn't matter if you're doing something internally or doing something externally. I, I think it's really important to, to know that that feedback exists. And that feedback loop is intended to be um, something that is, uh, helps you grow. But that doesn't always feel that way when you're getting it. Right. And I can also see where if you feel like you're not in a position where you could kind of take that directly, then getting somebody external or slightly removed to run the process, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that can be really helpful. And it's, it's surprising. And then, I, you know, the other thing is that um, I, I remind people, and this, is, this would be the same for like DevOps, for example, right? You, you, you read these stories in the development community and for the non-technical people, DevOps is the, is the term that software companies use to talk about the efficient deployment of software into production. Um, and it means a lot of things, but it, that, that's a not uh, unuseful summary, if you will. Um, when you read stories about DevOps, it's kind of like reading a story of an Olympic high jumper, and you're just trying to understand, you know, how to do the first step. People don't have to be perfect to get started. And I think that we've got a uh, um, around the world, we've got a culture of perfection, which says, if I can't do something perfectly the first time, I don't want to really do it at all. And, and that's not at all what we're saying. In fact, one of the 
one of the things that's really important about innovation games, and it's it's something that's really different about innovation games, is that any normal person can pick up my book and read it. That you, if you, if you want to try these techniques, get my book. I promise you, you won't even have to email me. There's enough content in that book where you can try it. Now, if you want to produce a crazy thing, well, sure, you need some experience, but you can get that experience. You can build that experience within yourself by using these techniques. And, and I think that that's one of the things that, that is not great in the Agile community, and it's not great in the market research community either. Meaning market research has become this thing where, you know, you have to wear, you know, a druid's robe and in, in, in chant statistics before you can do market research, right? Well, that, it shouldn't be that way, right? It, it shouldn't be the idea that I can't sit down and have a normal conversation with my customers. And that's what Innovation Games gives you. It gives you this opportunity to say, I'd just like to have a conversation with my customers that's more productive than I've had in the past. Yeah. And I, and I can see how ga- you know, gamifying it, right, increases the energy level, drives more insight. It's, it's very different to just let's have a facilitated conversation, isn't it? You've given people motivation, you've given people a goal, you're bringing all of those game dynamics um, to the conversation. Absolutely. And, and those game dynamics actually do matter, right? People, you know, when they're done, you know, I've had, uh, I did a session for GE and um, I, I remember, you know, we were, uh, when we were finished with the session, the GE customers started saying to the GE producer, uh, the, uh, it was a friend of mine, Jen Bennett, and they just went to Jen and said, wow, thank you. Thank you for giving us a forum even though we gave you some feedback that was hard about your product and the areas we want to improve, thank you for giving us a forum that we could do that in because we hadn't had that forum from prior leaders and we're really happy that you, that you did that. And I think that that's sometimes lost is that, is that these people really do want to have that conversation with you. And if you give them the chance, they'll be very happy that you've done that. They'll, they'll be thrilled. They'll be overjoyed that you did that. Hmm. And I don't know if this is your experience, but so one successful game type scenario that I used was with Lego Serious Play, which is where you use use Lego to explore. In this uh-huh. case, it was design, and I was building a, a vision for this this big change initiative with the client. And what I found with that uh, experience was that there was an individual who we worked with, and and she would not engage with any of the other techniques. But there was something about that exercise where it was creative. She had a a space to express herself in terms of her contribution to this vision um, in a way that just didn't happen through through any other means. And I I don't know if you find that with the games, that it draws almost any character out, right? Well, so let's think about um, let's think about the word game, and, and let's remind ourselves that game and framework are the same thing, right? So, no one who has used Lego Serious Play would say it's a game, like it's silly. And I had this experience, you know, when my children were younger, because they know what I do. They know I play games. When they were like in third grade, and they said, "Dad, did you have fun at work today?" Because in their mind, they were thinking, "Dad got to play games at work," and I said, "Well." And I realized in that moment, I'm like, uh, I said, yes, I, 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 I had fun today, but your meaning of the word fun and my meaning of the word fun is different. The meaning of adult fun at work is I felt engaged. I felt like I was contributing. 
I could see a material result, which is different than I'm being silly or I'm, you know, but now to be playful is the same cognitive brainwaves and structures, but, but the outcome for an adult is very different, right? I, I've, when I say I had fun at work, I don't really mean I was running around on a scooter, although I might. What it probably means is I had a sense of accomplishment that was profound and useful. I was engaged. I was heard. I was trusted. I was whatever all those things are that I would feel are associated with the feeling of play as an adult. Now, going into, the, into that world, back to your example of, of the woman who engaged, when I step on the, I'm going to switch for a second, so stay with me. When, I step on, when, I, when I'm outside the lines of the field of soccer or football, I can touch the ball with my hand. But when I step inside the field in, in, in the pitch, I don't touch the ball with my hands. It's because I feel that I'm in a new space. I am a safe space. I can behave differently. And what you really did was for that woman, what you really did was you created a space where she could step out of her normal operating model and behave differently. And in that particular space, she could behave as she were the creative expressive person that she really is. And, 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 and the, the profoundness of this is, um, you know, for example, Society Generale, the bank in France, they have a room with, with innovation games and materials. And Rackspace has what they call reactivity rooms where they have the materials. And what this really means is companies who say, I'm going to be having creativity everywhere will guarantee that they have creativity nowhere. Because creativity is a space that I need to enter, mental and or physical. And the reason we create physical spaces for creativity is because being in a physical space can help me assume the mental space. It's why writer, writers go to the cabin to write. It's why writers have writers' workshops. It's why we go to a conference to learn something that I could kind of perfectly well learn by listening to the conference at my desk. Well, at my desk, I'm not in the space of learning. I, it, it, and, and when I mean space, I don't mean just physical, although I do mean both physical and mental. So what you did for that woman, which is profound, was you created a space for her to express a certain thing that she was unable to express in the normal space. And, and I mean normal in air quotes, right? The, the standard space, for whatever reason, it wasn't working for her. And that's not to make her right or wrong. It's just it wasn't working for her. And so our job as, as designers of these outcomes is to create spaces that work for the participants, not work against them, work for them. And, and I think that that's something that is, is, is sometimes lost. And, and when I'm teaching my classes, I talk about the planning process, the, the design of the room, you know, the design of the interaction of the participants, who sits where, how is it structured? And, you know, because those things can create the space of, of, of what people are looking for to have the outcome that they're needing, if you will. Hmm. Yeah, so and bravo I think to you, by the way, bravo to you because 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 and and that's one of the things that Lego Series Play does do well 
it, it helps people create spaces that are profound. Right. Yeah. And that's my, and, and I should probably retract why well, it's not like all games are going to work for all people all the time, but I just think it gives you a much higher likelihood of getting constructive, creative um, contributions from people. Um, that, that's well, my sense. Well-designed well, game no, and well-picked game. Yeah. Actually, let me add something to that. Right. Um, Jane McGonigal is a great game theorist. Um, and one of the things that she points out is we play games until they become boring, right? So, so and, and the games that endure are the games that, from the content and the rules perspective, tend not to be boring. So, concretely, um, one of the games in the Holman household that we love to play is Scrabble. Um, uh, the, the, because it's a game that's got fairly simple rules. But it doesn't become boring because the combination of luck of the seven tiles that you draw and the fact that you're testing your mental model and mind about how many words you know and how many, like, it, it's, a, it's a very durable game, right? So, um, you know, other games, they don't have the same staying power, um, and that's okay. And so, th- like, for example, let's, let's think about games as retrospectives for the Agile community. You know... When, you know, starting off with, you know, the, the, the basic retrospective technique of, you know, what, what should we continue and what should we change and what should we stop? Man, that's awesome for an, for an Agile team. But any Agile coach will tell you that after a few months of that, the team is like, really? Like, are we going to do the same retrospective again? Like, are we seriously having scrambled eggs for breakfast again? Are you kidding me? Right. And so that's where the agile coach says, well, let, let's try this new retrospective technique. And, and that's not a flaw. That's just humanity being human. I'm bored. I've done the same retrospective technique. I got it. Can we try something else? So you're laughing, but you know, I'm, what I'm saying is, is, is deeply true because that's how it works. Like literally that's how it works. Right. And I can also see here also there's a sort of a skill here that one develops that almost the games master over time, you start to, it becomes an art of, of choosing the right game for the right context. Absolutely. In fact, one of the things that I've, I've talked about in, in prior work is that um, the, uh, let me just grab something here, but the, um, uh, <laughs> I've, I've said that one of my goals is, is I know will I will have been, um, successful when I see that uh, organizations create in, in the world a new executive position that I'm going to call the chief gaming officer. And the chief gaming officer of the, of the corporation is equivalent to any other senior executive position, like the chief financial officer or the chief marketing officer. And it's the person who says, we're going to make sure that our organization are using serious games, i.e. collaborative frameworks, to make our organization more successful. We're, that's my job. My job as the chief gaming officer is to ensure that our organization is gonna be successful. And if we can do that, then wow, we will have created a profound change in the world. Right. And that sounds a lot more fun than the chief frameworks officer. I know that you wanted to rebrand <laughs> to frameworks and I feel like all we've talked about is 
It's good. CFO's God anyway. So it has to be a CGO. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. CFO. Yeah. The chief framework officer. Are you chief, chief financial? Well, it's not inappropriate to say it would be the chief financial officer because of the, you know, the, um, uh, you know, why, why do I do what I do? Well, it's because I believe it creates better decisions faster. Like, let's go back all the way full circle to how we started this conversation. You talked about alignment on priorities. You know, the lean startup community talks about the biggest waste in the world is building the wrong thing. Like, we're so good at software development at building stuff now that the waste has moved from building things poorly to building the wrong thing. That's really compelling because, because what that suggests is that learning how to build the right thing, learning how to engage stakeholders, learning how to engage customers, that's, that is the economic motivation that underpins why we want to collaborate. It, it, meaning mm-hmm. it's, it's, you know, you, you, I, before we talked about the, starting our conversation, you were talking about like some of the people you've had on the show and some of the different, and I'm going to go back to my Walmart example. Like, this is good business. Like collaboration isn't here to make you feel better. I mean, I'm glad it does. Like, I'm really glad that people who collaborate are happier. Like I got that. And we do know that engaged employees are more productive, but I'm also talking about something deeper, which is, you know, business agility means that we can make decisions and marshal and align our resources faster. That's profound because that's where our organizations are heading. We are heading towards this greater notion of agility. Hmm. Great. Okay, final question, Luke. I ask most of my guests for you, Luke, what does it mean to be human? Oh, what does it mean to be human? Um, I think you asked me that as part of our pre-work, and I don't know if I answered it or how I answered it then, so I may may or may not answer it the same way now. What does it mean uh, to be human? Oh, wow. I don't know if I have a good answer to that. I, um, I think it's a, it's, it's a complex set of, 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 wow, what does it mean to be human? Um, I'm, <laughs> You're stumped. I am stumped. Um, I, I might want to call in. I've got four wonderful kids. I might. This might be one of those times where dad, you know, calls for a lifeline with a kid because I'm sure a kid would have a much better answer than an adult. Um, I don't know. I think. I think being human means trying to find, try, trying to trying to know who you are and and your place in the world in such a way that you create positive outcomes. Um, I had a client once who said, you know, what do you actually do for me? And I said, I provide positive energy to systems that need it. Hmm. And so for me, I can't assert what being human means to other people, but for Luke, what being human means is one of our corporate values. Um, One of our corporate values says we make a positive contribution to our community, we conveniently define community as world. 
That way we don't have to make any distinctions about where we provide energy. Hmm. And so what I don't always, I, I think it's a high ideal and I don't think I always achieve it um, by any means. I, um, cause I don't want to sound like, Oh God, that Luke guy, he's so altruistic. He's, he must be a saint. I'm, I'm no saint. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but I'm trying to make a positive contribution to, uh, communities I care about and, and communities I serve. Um, I think that's what being human means is finding that place for you and, and, and finding how to express it and finding how to be authentic about it. And that's hard. I mean, it's a life, it's a, it's a lifelong journey. Hmm. Can I ask you what that is for you? Or is that unfair? Is that off limits? No, no, in fact, you're the first guest to do that. Uh, okay. Well, <laughs> human. I know, go, go for it. Um, uh, mean to, I think it's an exploration. I, I suppose. And for me, it's a starts with an exploration on the inside. So for me to be human is to explore myself. And, and every inner crevice is something that I, I find myself engaging. And then that gives me access to explore out there. So it's, uh, it's, it's going inside to go, to go outside. And then reflecting, right? I mean, this gets into my training with Carl Weick and, and, and sense making, right? And, and, you know, when I, when I've done that part by going outside, the environment itself will give me feedback and stimulus that once now I have to take it in and I have to reframe and I have to decide, Oh, okay. You know, like, you know, the, the simple reaction of, you know, the baby with the hot stove, right? I touch the hot stove. It burns my finger. I've got a feedback loop that says, ah, that hurt. Right. I'm, I'm an adult and I am political in the negotiate in the budget negotiation process. And I get a short-term victory. And then the next budget cycle, no one supports me. Hmm. You know, like, mm, learn something, not the right way to manage my budget. So the next budget cycle, I say, hey, guys, you know, I may be a little bit overbearing on that last cycle. How about we work a little bit more together? And for whatever reason, I think that there really is a fundamental societal change, um, certainly in Western democracies, not necessarily around the world, where millennials are becoming more engaged and people have more access to information as the standard of living raises. You know, and, and we, we hope that this could be true around the world. We know it's not. But um, as all of that kind of comes up, rises up, we, we can see more people have that opportunity to, to, to do what you said, like get clear about themselves, engage with the world, and then repeat the cycle. Take that input. Mm, yeah, it's, and, a, and, it's a cycle. Yeah, yeah. And I think humans have that special ability, right, to, to introspect in a way that as far as we're aware, at least most animals don't. So that's why I, I think what's special about inside and inquiring. That's right. We have math language and opposable thumbs and, 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 uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so those, those things are really critical to the, to that, to that, um, process and, 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 and that shared insight and that shared understanding is, is mm. so critical. Great. Okay. Well, thank you so much. And for people who want to go deeper with this stuff, Contenio.com. Co. C-O-N-E-O.co. Yeah. Contenio.co. And from there, they can find the foundation. They can find the book. Is that right? Yeah. And and like you, you have this podcast, which is your contribution to the community. 
um, my contribution or some of them are, um, I run the Scrum Alliance um, Collaboration at Scale webinar. So every second Wednesday of the month, I have an interesting guest and we talk about um, collaboration at scale, um, problems faced by 10 or more um, agile teams in two or more locations. Um, I'm very also thankful and proud to let people know that I've joined uh, the Scaled Agile Framework uh, team as a framework contributor. So I'm helping um, imbue some of these thoughts into SAFE. And, and, I've, and I got to tell you that the, the, the rest of the team, um, our leader is Dean Luffingwell, who's amazing. Um, but uh, the rest of the team has readily embraced these techniques and, and um, you're going to continue to see more collaborative frameworks and thinking tools being infused in SAFE. And it's very exciting because it's the, by far the most important scaling framework that we have. Um, and it's really fun. For example, the recent version of SAFE now formally recommends participatory budgeting, that process of bringing people together to decide the budget as a team, as a recommended best practice for how agile organizations engage in budgeting. That's kind of a breakthrough. It's the only method that actually recommends this technique of specifically collaborating within the organization. So it's kind of exciting to see, you know, the, the, the largest and most important agile scaling method saying, hey, the way to scale and the way to move equi- uh, efficiently is to bring people into the budgeting process. And, and that's, mm. a, that's a breakthrough. That's really exciting. Well, that's, that's great. Although the, <laughs> I have to say the safe rabbit hole is an interesting one because it, obviously yeah, that's... Yeah, we could do that a different yeah, session or you could bring opinion. But, um, you know, I, I don't... The, yeah, let's leave that maybe for another time. But, yeah, um, well, I would simply but, say... But, that, I mean, it's fantastic that, it's getting, yeah. that these games are getting the airtime through that. Yes. Um, you know, through, 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 as you say, I mean, it's extremely popular framework and, um, you know, used by probably thousands of your organizations right now. So. Well, I would say that like any framework, right? You know, the first step is before you criticize it, understand it. And it doesn't really matter which framework you're using or what technique that you're talking about, right? Is, um, you know, I've seen the Agile community. I was, I was at the first Agile conference. I was one of the conference organizers way back in 2003. And I've served on the board of the Agile Alliance and other, done other things. And one of the things that I've seen the Agile community in a sense, um, devolve a little bit is that um, um, there's a lot of criticism without understanding. You know, people will say, oh, I don't want to do X, whatever X is. I don't want to do TDD. I don't want to do BDD. I don't want to do, and you're like, have you tried it? Like, Rather than making a commitment, I often say to people, I know we're going over time, but this is worth talking about for a second. People, people don't have to make premature commitments. Like if you think about like, um, do you have Zappos in, 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 in the UK, the, the shoe company where you can pitch shoes no. and return up? Oh, no, well, there's yeah. a great I mean, shoe company. I know the story. And in fact, we had Brian Robertson on the show who did all that work with Holacracy with, uh, with Zappos. Right. So, so one of the things, that, but as a retailer, Zappos is kind of cool, right? Because what you can do is, is you can um, buy a pair of shoes. You can buy like five pairs of shoes. You can try them on and you just ship back what you don't like, right? Well, what if you approached Agile like a, a Zappos? Like, hey, let's try this technique for a couple of sprints. 
if we like it, we'll keep it. If we don't, gosh, there's probably another one. So why don't, why don't rather than tra- saying TDD or BDD or safe or participatory budgeting, it won't work for us. How about we actually try it and, and we experiment with it and then, and then we can have our own data about what's working for us, that whole notion of retrospective. Um, anyway, we're, 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 we're starting to go over, but I, but I think that that's one of the things that I'm, I'm feeling a little bit saddened in the Agile community right now is that we're losing a little bit of the sense of playful exploration of, right. Of yeah, it's kind of, it has developed into religious wars to some extent, hasn't it? Yeah. I, yeah, I, it has to work, right? Like this has to work. And you're like, really? Wow, okay. I could I could spend a whole show telling you of all the mistakes that I've made in in creating Weave as opposed to all the successes we've had with Weave, although we've had plenty of success. We have. We love the success, but boy, you know, if I were to assert that I had, you know, you know, somehow this magical mind of of success, it, it, that would be unfair too, mm. or, or at least misleading. The phrase I most like for, with regards to that conversation is uh, from the twelve step community: "Take take what you like and leave the rest." Yeah. <laughs> so every twelve step meeting, that's usually said at some point. So I think there's something in there. You know that 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 that, that playful exploration. Yeah, t- take what you like, leave the rest. That's right. Okay. Um, Thank you so much for um, uh, inviting me and hosting me and having me on board. Um, it was really nice. <laughs> Great. Oh, well, I, I definitely could now consider you a mate, Luke. Oh, well, I, you know, I like the term. Um, um, and, you know, I, um, it, it is a good term, right? It, 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 it's a really, it's a nice term. <laughs> Nice term. Okay. Thank you so much. I know you've got, it sounds like you've been up already for, for several hours. So you're probably ready for us. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm a non-normal developer in the sense that I like to get up early and I like to, you know, um, <laughs> um, well, we have a distributed team, right? Even though uh, Continuo is a, is a bit of a smaller organization, I've got developers quite literally around the world, you know, Germany and, and across America. And so, you know, we, we do, you know, use tools, um, some communication tools like, like this and some coordination tools like our, our task tracking. And then, of course, we use Weave um, for ourselves, <laughs> um, which we like. So, Great. Well, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you so much. And uh, until next Thank time. Thank you so much. And we will hopefully uh, get a chance to play together. I think it would be fun. Yeah, that would be awesome. Okay. Thanks, Luke. Thank you. Bye. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.